DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald World, and The Roots of the Faith, The Church Fathers to You, on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. It's great to be back. Let's talk about a subject that a lot of Catholics in particular struggle with when trying to articulate the faith to others. And as you have so greatly taught us that when we are in trouble, go to the fathers. <laughs> yeah. And that subject is purgatory. Yes, and there's ample testimony to the ancient doctrine in the writings of the fathers. But, you know, it's there and it's implicit in the New Testament, and it's fairly explicit in one of the books of the Old Testament as well. It's certainly explicit in much of the devotion of the Jews of Jesus' time, because there was this idea of a place of purification after death, this interim state once you died where you underwent some kind of purification uh, before you went to your afterlife, however that was conceived in that time. And the Jews had this idea, and it's there in um, the second book of Maccabees, where we read about Judas Maccabeus and his army. And after one battle, they're collecting the bodies of their dead, and they realize that some of the dead had really taken part in superstitious practices. They were carrying amulets of pagan gods, and they were horrified by this because these are their comrades. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of affection for these men. They fought side by side with them, and they fought for the God of Israel. They were fighting for their restoration to the land. So they see this, and they're really struck by it, and they want to do something about it. And so they take up a collection, and they send it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering in Jerusalem. So there will be an offering made on behalf of the dead, Mm -hmm. so that the dead can be purified and forgiven, absolved of these sins, and they can participate in a good afterlife. That's what's implicit there at the end. And it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead. You know, that's what we read in in the second book of Maccabees. In the New Testament, we find in the book of Revelation that nothing unclean shall enter heaven. Mm -hmm. And yet we find in St. Paul that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what are we to do with all of these sins that we're carrying around, all this uncleanness that we we carry around? Because in in the Old Testament, we read that even the just man falls seven times a day seven times. All of these venial sins that are kind of spattering us. So we got to get rid of that uncleanness. And the way we do is in purgatory. You know, that's the way we're purified. And so there's, there's ample testimony in the New Testament. Christian tradition has, from the earliest times, looked at a certain mysterious passage of St. Paul from 1 Corinthians and seen that as testimony to the doctrine of purgatory. And here's, here's the passage from St. Paul. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what's he talking about here in this very mysterious passage? Mm -hmm. Obviously, he's not talking about the damned because he says that these people will be saved, but only as through fire. There's this purification after death. And that purification is what we call purgatory. Now, one of the earliest scripture scholars of the church, Origen of Alexandria, a great Egyptian scholar, he zeroed in on that passage in particular, and he talked about that as one of the most explicit testimonies to purgatory in the scriptures, even though it isn't very explicit. It never uses the word purgatory, but that's the way Origen read it. And as I said earlier, he's one of our great scholars from the early church. But it's not only Origen. Even before Origen, we have testimonies to the doctrine of purgatory. You bring up a good point on something that we probably will want to dive into just briefly, that we do not always find in scripture, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, an explicit term for a belief or an understanding that we may have, i.e., just as you cited, purgatory. That's right. The apostolic faith is so much more than simply the scriptures that the apostles left behind. St. Basil the Great says that there's the written testimony, the scripture, and then there's the tradition, what was handed on in a mystery, what was handed on by example. For example, we see in the Acts of the Apostles that the apostles went to a, a new place and they preached the gospel, but they didn't only preach. And they didn't only write letters. They did other things. They had ritual gestures. They baptized people. They laid hands on people. They anointed people. All of these unusual things. And St. Basil said the ways they did those are part of tradition. Things that were passed on in a mystery, in a kind of hidden way. And even as early as the 190s AD, we have Tertullian talking about this sacred tradition. He's a North African a lawyer who converted from paganism. And he kind of addresses this sola scriptura thing. And he says, you say that we must demand written authority even when we plead tradition. So then let us ask whether tradition should not be admitted unless it is written. Certainly we must say that it should not be admitted if we can find no precedent in any other practices that we keep up on the basis of tradition alone and the sanction of custom without any written documentation. But, but, he goes on to list off those practices. And he's writing in 190 and he's saying that these practices have been around as long as anybody can remember. And even the oldest people, the oldest Christians in our town, their parents remembered them from the earliest times. So this is from 190 AD. So he's like listing them off. He says, baptism in water according to a certain form, the celebration of the Eucharist, making the sign of the cross. And then he says this great statement, whenever an anniversary comes around, we make offerings for the dead as birthday honors. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about this custom that was there in 190 AD, and it was the most ancient custom this is his prime example of what tradition teaches us. But this custom 
of remembering the dead on their birthday, the anniversary of their death, the day they were born to glory, the day they had that second birth to new life at the end of this earthly life. So he's describing that. They made offerings on behalf of the dead on their anniversary. And and why would they do that if there were no purgatory? They were still praying for the purification of the dead every year after the dead relative or friend died. We'll return to Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. O Lord God Almighty, I beseech Thee, by the precious blood which gushed forth from the sacred side of Thy divine Son Jesus, in the presence of and to the great sorrow of His Most Holy Mother, deliver the souls in purgatory and among them all especially that soul which has been most devout to this noble lady that it may come quickly into thy glory there to praise thee in her and her in thee through all the ages 
Amen. O Lord, hear my prayer. And let my cry come unto Thee. O God, the Creator and Redeemer of all the faithful, grant unto the souls of Thy servants and handmaids the remission of all their sins, that through our devout supplications they may obtain the pardon they have always desired, who live and reign world without end. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord. And let perpetual light shine upon them. May their souls and the souls of all the faithfully departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. We now return to The Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina. It makes wonderful sense, doesn't it, Mike, this whole understanding of the church of purgatory. Because once again, even the scripture tells us through St. Paul that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. What wonders the Lord has for us ultimately when we enter into his great presence in heaven. So there must be some type of place or state that we're in so that I know that if I were unfortunately to meet my demise today, Mm -hmm. there's all this that still needs to be dealt with and that things that I'm carrying. Right. Well, even a Protestant like C.S. Lewis um, in modern times could just look at the scriptures, look at the tradition and, and come to the conclusion that something like purgatory was needed there would be some purification we would need to go through before we could go on to the glory of God. And he compared it to tidying up before you would go in for a visit with the king or the queen. And it just makes sense that way. And the fathers, of course, they read the New Testament, they were immersed in the New Testament, and they came away with a strong belief in this. I've already mentioned Origen and Tertullian, who were writing very early on. Another father who had a deep understanding of this was St. John Chrysostom, who urged people to offer sacrifice on behalf of the dead. Another one is St. Augustine, and he has that beautiful passage in his, his autobiography, in his confessions, where he's seeing his mother through her last days of earthly life, and he knows that her remaining days are few, and he's spending these days in theological conversation with her, Because even though Monica probably couldn't read, she was so, so immersed in scripture and the life of the church, and she had such a rich life of prayer that she was really a mentor to Augustine. And he looked at her that way. If if we read his dialogues, she shows up as his great teacher, his great patroness, even though he was one of the most brilliant men alive in his time. 
and recognized mm-hmm. as such. Well, we come to the end of Monica's life, and she's with two of her sons, Augustine and one of his brothers, and it's, it's almost like they've already begun to grieve for her. And she's vexed by this. She doesn't want them to be sad. And she doesn't want them to fuss a lot over her or over her body or over her funeral arrangements. But here's what she wants. This is all I ask, she says, that you remember me at the Lord's altar wherever you may be. Remember me at the Lord's altar wherever you may be. If they go to Mass, she wants them to be offering that Mass for the sake of their mom so that she could get through that purification and go to heaven. And that's someone who's as wonderful as Monica, someone who got to know the scriptures through their proclamation by attending the Mass every day and going to funerals just so that she could hear the scriptures proclaimed. Monica was was an exemplary Christian, but she knew that even she would need to undergo that kind of purification. And she begged her son's intercession on her behalf at the altars. And that really is the greatest gift we can give to those who've gone on, is offering the Mass for their sake. It speaks to me in your telling of all of this, Mike, of those great attributes of God, (laughs) whether it's grace or it's mercy. Oh, this is mercy, Oh, purgatory is such a great mercy. Another thing C.S. Lewis compares it to is going to the dentist, which most people look upon as unpleasant, but they want the kind of dental health that comes afterward. And there may be some kind of unpleasantness associated with purgatory, some kind of suffering, because you're not yet where you want to be. But you're on your way there, so you still live with that certainty that that's where you're going. It's a mercy of God that we can go to heaven even though we've sinned on earth and that this is our way of working through those sins. It's also a mercy that the people left behind can have this connection and can have something to do. When we lose a family member, when we lose a friend through death, especially if it's something sudden or unexpected, we often have unresolved issues, so much that we wish we had worked out. Well, this is a consolation to us that we can still do something for that person. I wish I had spent more time in conversation with my dad. I wish I had done more good things for him while he was alive. Well, I can still do good things for him now. I can still have the Mass offered on his behalf to shorten that time in purgatory, that time of purification. And when I do that, I'm doing what the ancient Christians did. I'm doing what the disciples of the apostles did. I'm doing what the apostles themselves did. This is the faith we received from Jesus Christ. This is the faith we have received from the apostles. And it's a beautiful faith. It's a merciful faith. It could only be from God. Again, the doctrine of purgatory within the heart of the church is something that has, for many, come alive because of the revelations, the private revelations from mystics from the Middle Ages. And yet what you're showing us is that if we go back even further and we look at the fathers of the church here once again, their teaching becomes this great web of faith, this great net. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because they don't depend on 
any kind of mystic revelations here. They just depend upon divine revelation in the scriptures. This was the plainest sense that they could read into those passages from St. Paul, for example, and from the book of Revelation, and from the book of Maccabees. We have the, the testimony of St. Macrina, who really lays out for her brother, Gregory of Nyssa, the doctrine of purgatory in a kind of systematic way. But she does it for him as a consolation, because Gregory is grieving over the death of their brother, Basil, St. Basil the Great. Mm -hmm. And if he's looking at the life of someone as great as St. Basil the Great, he's concerned about his brother. Well, we can learn from this, and we can say our reflection on the scripture should lead us to the same kind of deep faith, the same kind of devotion to those who've gone before us, and the same kind of abiding love for our ancestors and for our benefactors that manifests itself in our offering of prayers and sacrifice on their behalf. Again, to go back to that question of why then would there be a problem with this tremendous blessing of this gift of mercy, which mm -hmm. is this appreciation of purgatory, yeah. that we look at the origins of the fissure of those theologians, what, 500 years ago, yeah. as opposed to the great fathers that lived yeah. 2,000 years ago, yeah. why it's important to understand why they threw that out, why they a, took purgatory and they threw it out. It was a whole bunch of dominoes falling. They wanted to get rid of the doctrine of indulgences. So in order to do that, they really had to pull out the doctrine of purgatory, which gave people this sense of a need to acquire indulgences. And in order to do that, you know, they had to remove the deuterocanonical books from the Old Testament so that they're the most explicit mention of that time of purification in Second Maccabees was gone out of the scriptures. But then you're still left with all of these other things that we talked about in First Corinthians and in the book of Revelation, where we see some purification going on, and you're left to puzzle out what they mean. What can they mean apart from purgatory? The fathers of the church really did not come up with an alternative interpretation of those passages. They saw it as testimony to this idea of purification after death the doctrine of purgatory that we've inherited from them and that we still observe today. The fathers of the church would kind of scratch their heads if they were to look at the struggling body of Christ in their problems of purgatory. I agree. I think that it would appear to them as ingratitude for this tremendous mercy that God has given us. He's made things as easy for us as he possibly can. He's made things so beautiful for us. He's considered all of our ways of grieving and all of our needs for connection that transcend even death. He's taken all of that into account, and he's tried to console us in this way. And he's given us this doctrine, and yet we've taken it and we've buried it away, put it in a closet. And that's just wrong. You know, it's a doctrine that needs to be preached once again with renewed vigor. When we look at the schedule of Masses in our parish bulletin for the weekend, we see all of those Masses being offered for the dead. It's a beautiful thing. It's a testimony to the faith that we've received from the Fathers. It's a faith that's living still. And I would just implore our Protestant brothers and sisters that are listening out there that may hear the term purgatory and flinch to try not to necessarily connect it mentally with Dante's mm -hmm. great literary work yeah. on the Divine Comedy in which he, in literature, tries to describe 
what purgatory is. Don't use that if that is problematic for you. Go back to the fathers. Go back to scripture. Well, we try to understand these things symbolically with images because that's the way our mind works. It works from images. And so the symbols sometimes become deterrents to people, but they shouldn't because we're talking about spiritual realities. As I said before, we probably are talking about some kind of suffering. But if it becomes an impediment for you to think of the suffering as fire, well, know that it's a symbol and it stands for something that's happening, a kind of refinement, a kind of purification, and do what C.S. Lewis did and think of it as a washing up or a trip to the dentist, something that you really want to do before you go on to greater health or to that, that audience with the king or queen. It's something that's good for you and something that is a mercy. I recall after the, the passing of my own father, a memory that I had as a teenage girl saying some things to him that after his death, I wished I hadn't mm-hmm. said. And in remembering that time, the pain that came with that, the tears that flowed from that, that suffering that came. And entering into that in prayer and asking even then for his forgiveness, for the Lord to forgive me, and allowing that healing to happen. And I think that type of emotional suffering can be a fire, a painful, painful experience that maybe in some ways this is what the descriptions of that fire are trying to allude to. In one of the few, if not the only, mystic visions of this reality from the early church, we find St. Perpetua, who's imprisoned, and she has a vision of her younger brother, Denocritus, who had died years before. And we don't know what his sin was, but in the vision, she sees Denocritus, and he's thirsty, and he wants to get a drink of water, and he can't reach the water. And so she comes out of the vision, and she knows that she has to offer her sufferings in prison, and she has to pray on behalf of her brother. And she receives another vision of him, and he's at play in the fields of the Lord. He can drink, he can reach the fountain, and he can drink the water then. That kind of completion, that kind of growth, that kind of satisfaction was able to happen because of the prayers of St. Perpetua in prison. That's a testimony we have from very early, from a very primitive source. This prison diary of a girl who converted in Carthage in North Africa just as the century of the 100s was changing to the 200s. So it's a beautiful testimony to the ancient faith. But again, it's the faith that we're still living today. We recognize the faith of our parish and the faith of the ancient fathers. Reading the fathers isn't all that different from reading the parish bulletin. We find testimonies to the same realities, to the Eucharist, which is offered on behalf of the dead, to the invocation of the saints and the celebration of their feast days. So many of the things that we experience in parish life today, from the use of holy water to the, uh, the relics that are placed under the altar, all of these things really come to us from the earliest days of the church, and the fathers are always timely witnesses to those realities. As are you. <laughs> Mike Aquilina, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to The Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. 
This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina.